Returning to the Geopolitics and Empire podcast, his author Dmitry Orlov will be discussing his book, Shrinking the Technosphere, Getting a Grip on the Technologies that Limit Our Autonomy, Self-Sufficiency, and Freedom, which touches on ways technology or this thing known as the technosphere limits our economic and political freedoms as well as threatens the biosphere and environment. I'd also like to remind listeners to subscribe to all of our social media and weekly newsletter, all of which can be found at geopoliticsandempire.com. And thank the few of you who have left a tip via Patreon, PayPal, or Bitcoin. Uh, and ask new listeners for continued support because it does cost a considerable amount of time, energy, and money to produce this podcast. And so without further ado, thanks for coming back on, Dimitri. Thank you for inviting me. Glad to, uh, glad to discuss this topic. Yeah, and I purchased this book uh, from you a year ago and uh, only got around to reading it uh, recently. And um, you put to paper succinctly a lot of thoughts I've had on this subject of the technosphere. Uh, but let's start with what is the technosphere. The term for me evokes uh, different themes such as the technocracy, the 1930s scientific dictatorship movement, which I suppose is still alive today in some form. Uh, some people talk about the term uh, globalism, um, uh, an elite who wield technology to tighten their grip on power, perhaps private corporations uh, who wield greater power than states such as Silicon Valley, who at this moment are purging any anti-establishment voices from their online platforms. But it also, the technosphere reminds me of the Belgian utopian, Paul Otlet, who wanted to classify the world and create some sort of world city, uh, as well as it evokes images of science fiction, dystopian literature and film, such as uh, The Matrix. So could you tell us what is the technosphere? Well, what got me thinking about it initially was um, this, this thought that there are systems that, that uh, human beings evolve at various points that are not necessarily in their individual or group interests, and that these systems uh, behave as, as emergent intelligences and as, as agents uh, independent of the human will, that they manipulate people as opposed to people controlling them. Uh, probably the first one was agriculture. It made people sicker. It bowed them to, to the earth. It made them unable to move around as they had before, but it increased population density and allowed uh, more powerful systems of control to develop. Uh, it gave rise to empires, whereas before we had basically bands and tribes, and, and uh, that took over. And then uh, later on, we uh, had the development of the financial realm and, and money lending, uh, which was only made possible by agriculture and by the accumulation of, of harvests, of, of harvested wealth. And eventually this, uh, this way of handling wealth involving uh, money and debt took over and, and grew out of control uh, at, so that money became this necessary evil that, that people required to keep, to keep evil at bay. Um, and then later on, we, in, with industri industrialization, and especially with the development of fossil fuels, we had the full development of the technosphere, which is now a realm onto its own, an emergent intelligence that we have no chance uh, outside of, and that we must allow to take priority over our own interests, even if uh, our basic interest is just elemental survival in terms of not, in, not destroying the biosphere or, or what's left of the biosphere. So just to, again, clarify that note on your definition of the technosphere, so it's not any sentient um, being, but I suppose it can be wielded by, by political elites? Um, yes, well, it, it can be used to, advan to one's advantage or one's disadvantage, uh, especially in, in large groups. Uh, for instance, you could make the fatal choice of not industrializing, and then uh, your country will be taken over by a neighbor that has not made that choice, but instead has industrialized and has produced uh, weapons of war at the industrial scale. That has happened over and over again. So uh, attempts to not be part of the technosphere lead to failure. Um, another... Uh, 
another move that people can make is decouple from the global financial system. Well, that that leads to uh, revolt eventually because uh, uh, the the global financial system, with all of the injustices that it creates and all of its flaws, uh, allows people to become wealthy. And people, when deprived of that ability, will revolt eventually, um, as has happened all, all over the place. So people can people can make decisions on some scale, but in terms of pushing back against the technosphere as a whole, the project is more or less doomed to failure. So we are condemned to sort of uh, nibble away at it at the edges to, to make uh, basically lifestyle decisions so that we're not just utterly ravaged by the technosphere, uh, but we can't banish it altogether. And you also say that the technosphere demands homogeneity. Um, and now we're seeing all this, uh, this crisis with migration in, in Europe and Central America where uh, you're, you're having people from different countries going into European countries. And we have this globalization uh, of culture where, you know, here in Kazakhstan where I am, the most popular restaurant is Kentucky Fried Chicken. I mean, you go to the malls here in Kazakhstan and the local food chains, uh, when you compare the KFC has always got this long line compared to the local food chains. So uh, what is it about this the, uh, technosphere that demands a homogeneity of, of culture and is the migration crisis part of this push towards making nations homogeneous? Well, there, there are a lot of... Uh uh, there are a lot of reasons why these these uh, global brands are actually global, and one of them is that they uh, they, cap they they cater to the least common denominator. They care to immature tastes. So uh, you know, children like chicken nuggets. Adults don't necessarily, but but they are forced to eat chicken nuggets because that's the most universally acceptable fare. Um, there's a lot of that to it in terms of. Uh, in terms of controlling people, uh, the first step from the point of view of the technosphere is to standardize everyone. So instead of uh, having an educational system that basically uh, tries to figure out which, what each person's aptitude and talent is and allow them to develop it individually, which is what produces an educated individuals, instead the effort is to, again, cater to the least common denominator. Uh, so for instance, mathematics is dumbed down so that uh, those uh, students in the class who are least capable are able to keep up. And then the, the smartest students basically are uh, deprived of any stimulation in, in learning math and lose interest. Um, instead of actually learning how to solve problems, people are, are taught to, to fill in circles on multiple choice test forms. Um, that sort of thing. In terms of the migrant crisis, uh, the effort, uh, which again is very much in line with the, the, the interests of the technosphere to commoditize everything, including human nature, is to basically posit that there is this universal humanity and that there are universal human rights that supersede just about everything else. And that everybody must be treated the same regardless of. Um, you know, how, how their ancestors have, you know, have lived and what they have been conditioned to excel at. You know, some, some population groups have, you know, they excel at disease tolerance and others excel at intensive farming. And th those, those groups are not necessarily the same. Some others are excellent at industrial work um, and, and they're disjoint with the other two groups. But Everybody is lumped into the same group. Everybody has to be treated the same. Everybody's processed based on the same set of bureaucratic principles. That's the goal. And talking about uh, the technosphere, uh, it reminds me a lot of something Jim Rickards, uh, author Jim Rickards, has written about systems or complexity theory. And it seems like the more complex uh, a system gets, the more fragile or precarious uh, it becomes. And then it creates these technologies that it creates, uh, create unintended consequences, which constantly need to be mitigated to prevent the 
entire system and biosphere as well as technosphere from collapse, collapsing. And you've mentioned nuclear uh, energy, the problems we've seen with that in, in Ukraine and uh, Japan, uh, GMOs, nanotechnology. Kind of reminds me of Microsoft Windows updates, which are in need of constant patching for a system that you know it's always failing until one day it, it can collapse. So how fragile is this technosphere itself? Well, it's, it's robust in, in, in the sense that it is very difficult to stamp out or destroy and nobody has the ability to do it. It does not have anything to, resembling an off switch. It will blindly march forward um, until something catastrophic happens. But that catastrophe is very much coded into it because it does, although it does have a possess a certain kind of intelligence, an emergent intelligence. It is not a human intelligence. It is, um, you know, the technosphere, to, to, to put it, you know, not to put a, too fine a point on it, is, is an idiot savant. It is very good at growing, like a cancer is capable of growing. But it, just like a cancer, it is incapable of seeing whether or not it's, it's killing its host. Uh, the technosphere specifically is completely incapable of seeing physical limits to its growth and expansion. It uh, has absolutely no way of measuring diminishing returns, be it in oil and natural gas extraction or um, using the biosphere as a sink or uh, any of the other uh, problems that develop along the way. It cannot see physical limits. It can also it is also unable to see the limits of technology. Its basic assumption is that new technology is always better than older technology, that more technology is better than less technology, and then no matter what the problem is, the solution lies in the application of even more technology, even if it's technology itself that created the problem to begin with. And to talk a bit uh, of its um, influence on the biosphere, something that you've written about for a long time, the environment and climate change, you give a long list in the book, uh, but you know, there's everything from air pollution, the toxicity, water pollution, the contamination of the plastics, uh, the depletion of so many resources. And uh, as you mentioned, it's built into the, the system. You, you cite Chris Clugston's book, on technological civilization being a suicide pact. Uh, could you talk about the aspects uh, of the biosphere, how much stress is being put uh, on the environment, and uh, you know how, what, where we are in that sense and where it might go? Well, we, we can see the, the human footprint, industrial human footprint everywhere, and everywhere we look. We can see it from space. We can measure it in, in a great many ways. Uh, we can we can see it in you know the, the California wildfires and in the reaction to them. Um, it is almost comical that you know that various uh, news organizations keep talking about the uh, the hundred year flood or the hundred year fire, and then a year later they talk about this year's fire being the new hundred year fire, etc. Um, you know as. Uh, um, Lee Camp put it, you know, they're, they're always saying, this one is for the history books. And then next year, well, I'll throw out the old history book and write a new history book because it just keeps getting worse. You know, this, th that's the comical aspect to it is that, you know, the, the aspect of just complete total denial that we are in runaway mode when it comes to things like forest fires and floods and, and various kinds of environmental devastation. The one place where you can definitely see it is in the insurance industry. Um, in all the places in the world where um, the high standards of the place require property to be insured, uh, in a lot of cases, it's no longer insurable. The government turns out to be the insurer of uh, last resort. That's the case with flood insurance in much of the, the United States these days. The federal government pretty much had to, had to take it over because private insurers would just go bankrupt. Um, and you, you can see that. You can also see in where... Uh, devastation results in not very much rebuilding at all. So, for instance, we know that you know certain islands, including a very large one, which is uh, um, you know in the Caribbean, um, 
you know, just completely got devastated by hurricanes. How much rebuilding is taking place there? Well, we really don't know. We don't hear too much about the, uh, uh, the, the success stories of rebuilding in, in Puerto Rico. You know, it's pretty much gone dark, as far as I can tell. It's just not in the news. So that's the pattern of, of complete denial, of not realizing that, well, we've, we've already hit all these limits. We're way past them. We're, we're in, the, in the age of consequences. We're not in the age of thinking about what will happen. It's already happening. Yeah, and I, you know, I just had a, especially for people who have a family, I just had my first child and I'm living here 100 kilometers away from the Polygon, the principal nuclear testing site uh, of the Soviets where they dropped 500 bombs. And, uh, you know, having, um, you're always worrying, it's getting really tough to keep a healthy lifestyle because we're being attacked everywhere, everywhere from the air pollution um, from the water contamination, our, our foods, you know, uh, genetically modified. And so it's getting, it's, it's a real struggle to, to watch out for those things. And you write that part of the inspiration for your book was a speech by President Putin using the term nature-like uh, technologies to restore balance between the biosphere and tech technosphere. And you also write about this mechanism, I guess, to do that would be political technologies you use, you use the example of the United States, how they have uh, really developed this uh, their political technologies, uh, and you give examples of how they have used them for for uh, bad. So it's a double-edged sword. You say it can be used for good, it can be used for bad, uh, and you name different industries where these pol political technologies are evidence from lobbies to media, education, the weaponization of uh, politics. You go a little in-depth with the color revolutions and hybrid warfare. Um, and this political technology, you know, it's kind of like an arm, I guess, of the technosphere. It reminds me of the geostrategist Thomas Barnet's map. I guess he wrote a book called The Pentagon's New Map. And it kind of depicts the American unilateral version of globalization. Uh, and any countries that are experiencing wars and conflicts like Yemen, Syria, and Libya, Iran, they tend to be countries that are independent and not plugged into this uh, system, and so they suffer a, as a result. So could you talk a bit about uh, the inspiration, uh, President Putin's talk, the nature-like technologies, uh, and as well as these political technologies, which I assume are part of the solution? Well, um, actually, the fact that I picked up on, on what Putin said um, cost me a lot of readers, because uh, right as the book came out, uh, Trump got elected. And then all this nonsense started about Russian meddling and, and the idea that somehow Trump was elected to office uh, because of Putin's influence, as opposed to, say, Hillary Clinton's absolute complete incompetence, which is closer to the truth. Um, so that cost me a lot of readers. Also, it was a bit of wishful thinking. I, I think that, you know, Putin himself, uh, you know, had what I what I had in mind, but he also is a realist, and um, the realistic situation is that Russia has to win the technological race against the United States in order to survive. It cannot just go agrarian, although that's that's part of it. Russia has sort of gone in the direction of becoming more agrarian. It is, it is now the largest grain exporter in the world, uh, lar the largest grain producer in the world. It, you know, the grain exports get it more money than uh, defense exports at this point, which are also booming. But, um, and, and also it banned GMOs, which is wonderful. Um, the, there, there's been a great effort to invest in, in food security. Uh, Russia is almost entirely self-sufficient in food at this point. Um, grapes are, of course, still a, an important, some tropical fruit and various other things, but uh, most of the staples are produced domestically. But there's, there's another part of the thrust, which is that, you know, Russian, the Russians realize that they have to win the technological race. Uh, and they have to win it hands down. And part of that is in, is in weapons research, which is 
going pretty well, um, especially in the area of defensive weapons. Uh, and part of it is in, in various other fields that are prestige fields like, like bioengineering, like nanotechnology, that put Russia on the map internationally, make it a contender. Um, that they're, they're moving ahead with uh, creating a, a digital economy. And government services in Russia are, are a lot better now, uh, actually, from just the user's point of view because of all of that. And commerce is, is a lot smoother. Um, so there isn't really an effort to push back on the technosphere. There's an effort to co-opt it uh, and use it uh, for for the national good of, of Russia and the Russian people. Um, it's rather different from what I had in mind, but it's not all bad. And speaking of uh, the hybrid warfare aspect and that you've lost some readers or uh, I'd also like to mention to listeners that I've received a few really strange emails from people as well as uh, a review or two calling the podcast uh, Russian Propaganda. Uh, and it's uh, that just happened like a week or two ago. Someone posted on iTunes. Um, and then I read an article about a week ago from Wired Magazine discussing a British information warfare unit whose job is to go online and forums and uh, social media and try to discredit, uh, you know, people who have, I guess, discussions, like critical discussions like this. So I'm far from a Russian propagandist myself. Um, in fact, I was trying to get on an expert to discuss, you know, some cr cr elements of criticism of the Russian government. I like to look at all sides. So but, you know, you try to do your best and see what happens there. Uh, I guess you'll always lo lose. You can't please every listener or reader. Uh, and there were two th interesting tangents or so side things you mentioned in your book that I, I kind of agree with, that um, your take on Noam Chomsky and his failure, in a sense, uh, at his, I don't know if you call it a failure, but uh, his primary profession as a linguist, uh, and then his switch over to politics, if you'd care to comment. Well, yes. I, I mean, I, I, I didn't really, you know, I, I don't particularly feel like uh, uh, picking on old gnome. Uh, but I, I, I suppose I have a, an extra grind because I was an, a graduate student in linguistics, and I was more or less forced to study Chomsky and linguistics. And I never actually got to, got very far in it because I, I couldn't get, couldn't get a response to my initial criticism of his approach which I found to be sub-scientific. Sort of, it was some sort of a fake effort to make linguistics into a science, and at that it was just a complete failure. Posited mechanisms within the human brain for which there was, zero, and still is, zero actual physiological evidence, um, which pretty much angered me. Uh, but he pushed ahead with it, and, and he created a sort of linguistics mafia to a point where you couldn't, do any other kind of linguistics in the United States, especially not in Boston. I was just across the river from MIT, and you know there was just no getting away from from Chomsky and linguistics. But you know, all sorts of scholarship has a right to exist. It's just it doesn't have the right to dominate and to squeeze out other approaches that may be more valid. And another interesting uh, part of the book, you mentioned the technosphere's continued drive for uh, resources. So. You know, it's assumed when on Earth resources are, are depleted, like we see in the movies, uh, we go uh, into space exploration. Uh, you know, we have all this stuff with SpaceX uh, and Elon Musk wanting to go to Mars, as well as Jeff Bezos' uh, Blue or Origin. And so this idea to dominate beyond Earth, and you say the Russians are the only ones capable of venturing into space, um, and they've gone only into low orbit. I suppose because of the cosmic radiation beyond that, um, and that we know, I believe, up until 1969, the Soviets, correct me if I'm wrong, were hitting the space first, such as first dog into space, first man into space, first spacewalk, which, by the way, on, on, on the train here in Kazakhstan, I watched the films, the Russian film Spacewalkers, and I was amazed at the quality uh, of the film, very good, one of the first Russian films that I've seen, and I was amazed at the, the quality. 
Um, and then out of the blue, the U.S. lands on the moon in 1969, and which you kind of question, and I kind of have doubts myself. And indeed, the Russians just this week said, I believe in the future moon mission, they are going to verify the veracity of the U.S. moon landing. So, I mean, what are your th thoughts there? This go technosphere going into sp space as well as the moon landing. Well, yes, you, you can look at the American footage of the, the moon landing and say, where are the stars? It doesn't matter if the sun is up or down on the moon, the sky is black and you can always see stars. So where are they? And, and then I'm not the only one who just calls the whole thing into question. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not just uh, these little things that uh, stick out like a sore thumb to anybody who thinks about it a little bit. Um, the, the, the director of Roscosmos just recently announced that they want to do a mission to figure out whether the Americans actually set foot on the moon or not. And, and a, lot of a lot of people are questioning that. Uh, a lot of people are questioning many things that Americans have said or claimed over the years, uh, such as the entire official narrative behind 9-11, that many countries, not, not just Japan, which is, I'm not sure what's going on with that, but many other countries have, have questioned that narrative at, at an official level. And it would be really nice to eventually figure out just how many times the Americans have lied. You know, the Americans tend to lie about a lot of things. They, you know, they, they lie about their own quote-unquote civil war, which wasn't a civil war. It was an invasion of the South by the North. Uh, they lie about the fact that it was about slavery. It was not about slavery. Um, just lots and lots of things about the narratives that Americans have uh, tried to, to foist on the world just ring false. So it makes sense to actually, you know, do some work and dethrone these myths. And uh, mo moving on as well as you describe in the book, the technosphere being terminally uh, ill, I suppose, you know, depleting uh, resources, uh, the economy being sl slowing growth as a result of the de declining supply of natural resources needed for production, this papering over of unpayable debts. And, you know, it seems more and more people are now seeing the obvious of all these debt bubbles I mean, a bubble in pretty much everything from pensions to bonds to the stock market to everything. And we're approaching this day of reckoning. And I think you published a, a book. I mean, you've talked a lot about the collapse, uh, the economic aspect. And I think you published a, a book recently uh, related to that. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about what, what will happen, uh, you know, where we are in the timeline? What do you think? Uh, it, it'll look like if, if, if you've gotten any updated your your vision over the years recently? Well, what it looks like to me is uh, there's a mad scramble right now for the United States to uh, retain some sem semblance of its former glory or you know rekindle it in some way. It's using the fact that it's been pumping flat out in the, the, the shale oil and gas patch and has a temporary glut. But if you, if you look at, and, and it's currently very close to or is uh, the top uh, uh, hydrocarbon producer in the world, but uh, it never made any money doing it. Uh, the, the entire uh, shale industry is, is going to pretty much go belly up as interest rates increase, which they're bound to. Um, and and um, the depletion rates for, from all, the, all of the existing wells uh, are extremely high. And, and so it's a matter of uh, maybe a year, maybe two years before there's a, a massive shale crash in the United States. And after that, the United States is pretty much done as a hydrocarbon producer and has to, be, has to become reliant on imports once again. Uh, meanwhile, there isn't really, there's a temporary glut, but, but overall, there isn't really a lot of spare capacity in the world. Uh, the world is still discovering much less than it's using in terms of hydrocarbon resources. And the only exception to that is Russia. Russia is the only country in the world, really, of any size that's uh, discovering more resources than it's exploiting. 
and that trend is likely to continue. So it looks to me like the United States is, you know, dreaming of uh, become reindustrializing and and uh, restarting uh, manufacturing, but that is just not going to happen for for any number of reasons. One of which is energy, uh, and um, and another one is uh, the lack of a you know cheap labor force, and a third one is that it's just got a completely untenable uh, tangle of dysfunctional systems, starting with the legal systems, it spends too much money on lawyers, the medical system, it spends too much money on doctors, the transportation, it spends too much money on transportation and energy, uh, very bad infrastructure, no technology clusters that the government has invested any money in, um, just lots and lots of problems, so it's not going to happen. And at the same time, it seems like Russia is, is the emerging force that is industrial force in the world that coupled with China uh, will provide Eurasia with a, a, a fairly solid industrial basis for maybe a couple more decades, maybe more. Um, I've seen uh, ideas, uh, theories, but they're not very—they're not highly theoretical. They're based on on quite a bit of fact. That in fact, Russia could uh, pave the path to a, a, a post-carbon economy based on. Uh, based on nuclear energy. Uh, in order to become independent of oil, natural gas, and coal, uh, in about 50 years, Russia has to start building uh, 10 uh, nuclear power plants a year. It has enough uranium to um, last maybe 500 years. Uh, it uh, is the top uranium a processor in the world already. Uh, it processes almost half of all the uranium in the world. It, it's got a, you know, a full dance card building uh, nuclear power plants around the world. Um, and, and so this is not, not an untenable, unlikely proposition. Uh, on the other hand, um, the United States and Western Europe um, have made all sorts of bad investments. The United States has invested, and Canada have invested in in very dirty and temporary technologies such as tar sands and and shale, and and Western Europe has in, invested a lot of money in in solar panels and 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 windmills that are just basically money eaters. And then there's some really bad examples like Lithuania, which closed its its only nuclear power plant, which was because it was Russian built and Lithuanians don't like the Russians. And now their, their energy prices are through the roof and there's absolutely no hope of any industry at all in Lithuania. They just basically killed it. Um, so there are, a lot of, uh, there, there are a lot of negative examples. And then on the other hand, there, there, are, so, there are very sensible developments uh, that are happening around Eurasia in terms of... Uh, pipelines being laid to Western Europe and to China, uh, plans with Korea, possible plans with Japan, if that is ever shaken out. Um, but they all have Russia as the, the energy and industrial core, which is an interesting development. Yeah, and regarding the what you mentioned about the oil, the news today, uh, just today, was that Qatar is leaving, the, leaving OPEC um, so that's perhaps a sign of the the cracking of the 1970s uh, petrodollar system and some of the countries looking to pivot perhaps towards the east, China, Russia, Iran, and the alternative system being built. Um, and you mentioned the, the nuclear power. Uh, I believe Russia recently uh, created their first floating nuclear, some kind of a, a boat or floating nuclear power plant and um yes it's a it's a giant barge with a, a nuclear power station on it and uh it can be moved to anywhere in the world and provide a sizable city with uh, uh with heat and electricity um and it needs to be refueled not very often at all and and if if they uh, put these on stream I, I bet there will be a lot of takers around the world. 
And yeah, a few days ago, I, I listened to uh, a webinar given by Mar Martin Katusa of Katusa Research, who's a commodities uh, investor, and he was saying how uranium in uh, the next year or two or three, the price of uranium and the uranium uranium miners that it's going to be on an up cycle. So I think you know that kind of confirms what you're saying about nuclear power, but. What about the concerns uh, of what can go wrong? Because I think in your book, I don't know if you've changed a bit of your opinion, um, but of the of the, the danger uh, you discuss, uh, the the money isn't there to decommission uh, power nuclear power plants, and then you have the the problems of the the water toxic water runoff. And so, what do you think uh, there? Well, there, there are a lot of problems around the world having to do with nuclear power. And, um, you know, there, there, there are some in Russia too, but um, uh, they're, they're basically power plants around the world that have been built by, by, uh, by, by GE and others uh, that, that uh, there, there's really no money to decommission. Um, we can see the problem of doing that with Fukushima. You know, how many decades into the future is that projected to, to take? Well, that's a, a worst case because that, that's three meltdowns. Um, there the, the was a success, though. They did manage to move all of the fuel out of uh, the, the fuel storage tank, um, which is, you know, a good thing. It was heroic, really. So there are a lot of problems with, with uh, nuclear power around the world. Um, there was uh, really just one horrendous accident that happened in Russia, of course, in, in, in the Ukraine and in, with Chernobyl. Uh, but there were a lot of lessons learned and a lot of improvement, safety improvements made. And, and nuclear safety in Russia is, is almost a religion at this point. Uh, so there's, there, it's, very, it's very unsafe uh, if done wrong. But... There, there is the possibility of being it being done right, and one of the things that Russia is doing now is looking for a uh, long-term spent fuel uh, disposal site deep in the bedrock. Uh, they're, they're exploring one particular mountain range, and and there the idea is that this this uh, fuel will be sequestered safely within uh, granite bedrock. Uh, for millennia, and eventually it'll it'll just become even more depleted, become become safe, and eventually go into a subduction zone and and melt into magma, and and uh, then circulate inside the planet forever. Uh, it will never become concentrated again. So you know, as as material, it'll be lost forever. But by then, there won't probably won't even be humans alive on Earth. So it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily concern us. And get, getting back to the technosphere, and I guess one of the biggest, perhaps you could summarize, you know, uh, or restate the the biggest threats uh, to us from the technosphere. And and one of the things that concerns me, well, you call it in your book a single unified global controlling growing destructive entity existing beyond human reason or morality. And one of the aspects, I suppose, of the technosphere is the technological aspect. We're really starting to see now the whole surveillance state, um, no privacy. And we know China has this dystopian sesame social credit system where people now can't get on trains or planes. And it was interesting. I think there's this Amer uh, American entrepreneur of Chinese descent uh, who's running uh, on the Democratic Party platform for 2020 uh, in the U.S., who's proposing, uh, who has proposed a similar type of credit system in the U.S. And, you know, we have this big surveillance state in the U.S., the, the Five Eyes countries, the 14 Eyes the, in Europe. And it seems many countries are, are building it up as well. In, in India, they're doing biometrics and in Mexico, uh, where I'm also a citizen, that you know, slowly they're starting to do things like that. Uh, in Kazakhstan, here they're going to digitize the healthcare, so everyone's health information will be on this one like digital card and the cryptocurrencies and the digital currencies. So, 
what what is your take? Are you concerned with that with that aspect of the technosphere and and how bad can it get? Well, um, there are horrendous opportunities for abuse in all of these systems. Uh, people can be herded pretty much like cattle. Uh, they become passive, and chances of uh, any sort of productive rebellion uh, can be pretty much neutralized at will. Uh, and yet, there are positive aspects to it as well, which is uh, it, it's a good way to drive down crime rates, and it's also um, uh, it offers new, interesting ways to control uh, human interaction within society. So that, for instance, you can. Um, just a trivial example in Russia, there used to be all of these renegade taxi drivers. You never, when you hailed a cab, uh, you you never knew whether you were going to get robbed or not or raped or whatever. But uh, now nobody hails cabs anymore. It's just not done. Instead, you take out your, your smartphone and you, you order a cab from one of the services where everyone is known. Basically, it, it's your SIM card is tied to your internal passport. There's no hiding. Everything is public record. Um, and, and so there's, there's really no, um, no incentive and a powerful counter-incentive for taxi drivers to do anything but offer a good service. Anything else that they do is just going to hurt them. And that's not, that's not just ta taxi drivers. That's every kind of contractor that you can hire. Now it's again. You you take out your smartphone and you can you can you can hire any anyone to do anything. You can let a person into your apartment to to say clean it without worrying that they'll rob you because why would they rob you? They will never get another client again. Uh, so those are positive aspects. Uh, the negative aspects all have to do with you know the evil that giant corporations can do, and that's not an absolute ironclad necessity. Yes, it's much more likely to happen in countries where there's no government powerful enough to rein in evil, powerful corporations, such as the United States. The US government has minimal control over entities such as uh, Google and, and Facebook, which have more or less melded with uh, the 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 most evil parts of the federal apparatus, uh, the security agencies. Uh, in other countries, that may not be the case. I don't know where, where China lies on this, on this continuum, but if you look at how well China is doing relative to the United States and how quickly China is really outdeveloping and outpacing the United States, how much more they get done, you know, you... You basically have to say that, well, a country that horrendously mis mistreats its own people is unlikely to achieve such good results. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess to look at, <clears throat> finally, what are some things people can do um, to mitigate, I guess, the, the te technosphere? Um, you talk about... Uh, you, you give an example where going off-grid may not necessarily be a good idea and can invite problems uh, with the government. I, I was—I uh, remember that you know I have a home in Mexico, and I was just thinking about in the future trying to go 100%, getting all my electric electric energy from the sun, going 100% solar. I mean, I've seen people manage to do that in their homes, but there's a law in Mexico that says you're not allowed to unplug from the public utility of electricity and go 100% solar if you so wish. Um, and that's kind of, that kind of make, irritates me. Um, but you give different examples to combat the technosphere. You discuss the formation of a partisan group um, of people with common beliefs. Um, so what are some things people can do, if, if you want to mention, to, to mitigate the technosphere? Well, uh, getting closer to nature is always a good idea. How close to nature you can get is, um, you know, difficult to say. I spend summers in the in the countryside and, and have started growing a bit of food. I will probably increase that. Uh, basically, any chance to grab grab a bunch of land and 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 work it to achieve some level of of even partial self sufficiency is a step in the right direction. Um, 
a lot of a lot of such measures can be thought of as insurance against troubled times. And that's a, a you know a typical Russian thing to do. A lot of people around here have country houses that they use to grow stuff in the summer. Um, not so much when they don't need to, but if the, if times get worse, turn worse, they always have a you know a res- they they can always resort to that. Um, in terms of going completely off grid, well, I've done that for periods of time by living on a boat where I had a wind generator and solar panels, and for periods of time I could uh, pretty much just unplug from the shore cable, and you know nobody noticed. Um, there are a lot of restrictions that have to do with houses that don't exist for boats for a variety of reasons. So for me, living aboard a boat is one of these major, major life hacks that just completely destroys uh, an entire layer of social control having to do with with um, with sedent- sedentary living. Um, but with with people who live in houses, for people who live in houses. There are a lot of problems to sort through if you try to make, if you try to decouple yourself from the technosphere. And I guess my final question is: uh, you write about the social aspect, which interests me uh, a lot. I'm already able to kind of decouple myself uh, from the technosphere, and I'm planning on doing so. But most people are locked in what you describe as that iron triangle: the sedentary iron triangle, the job, um, the house and the car and the debts that come with it, the nine to five job, the taxes, um, and how difficult it is to move away from that. And I think oftentimes people even that are able to move away from that don't. Uh, and I found most people lately that I've been talking to about this idea of, you know, unplugging a bit from the technosphere and, you know, doing something different instead of nine to five jobs, they all have this uh, violent reaction. It's, I, I kind of think of it as a stock type of Stockholm syndrome, or you you call it the robo path type of person, I think, where people get uh, offended. Um, can you talk about that social uh, aspect where a lot of people just buy into this nine to five thing? Well, um, I, I don't mean to be rude, but 99% of the people, maybe it's 98, just don't, don't stand a chance. I'm sorry. They're just going to be roped into the scheme till the day they die. And it's pointless to talk to them about it. So probably that explains the, you know, the, the small readership of my book. Um, I'm lucky that I have you know, maybe 10, 20,000 people who are aware of what I do. Uh, around the world, you know, and that, that's a bit of luck. But, you know, as, as a percentage of the world population, what is that? Well, it's vanishingly small. Uh, the people who do try to uh, make a go of it, who strike out and become independent, ditch the nine to five, cut their burn rate, diversify their sources of income, uh, maybe turn into digital nomads, maybe di- combine digital nomadism with uh, growing their own food, which is an amazing way to go. Um, What they have to do is lie to everyone about what they're doing. Not everybody is such a a proficient liar. You basically have to present a front to the world that is acceptable to them, that doesn't provoke this reaction that you notice, where people just hear about you doing this, this thing, and they just completely decompensate and think you're... You're some kind of a, you know, an evil monster just because you don't want to work for anyone and you want to live well anyway. Uh, that's just so unacceptable because it undermines who they are, which is a faithful servant. Um, and, and so you have to hide that part of yourself. You can't just go out and say that that's what you're doing. That's, that's your plan. You're executing this plan. Um, they, they will try all sorts of things. Uh, they will try to disrespect you. Uh, they will try to uh, portray you as some kind of a freeloader or as a destructive element, antisocial element. So you, you have to keep that private. So any final thought you'd like to leave, with, leave us with regarding the technosphere or anything else? Well, I'm very happy that you, you like the book and that there's still some interest in it. Um, 
I, I decided after I published this book that I probably should just stick to writing essays because um, it was a big production for me. It required a lot of research, uh, a lot of work, took a year of my life. And the results were that um, not too many people around the world can, can accept what I wrote and can make use of it. Uh, it was really uh, rather adventurous of me, perhaps too adventurous. Now, perhaps if people are interested, I'll pick up this topic in the future. I do these experiments, and some of them work out and some don't. Uh, I'm not sure how this experiment rates uh, in terms of the ones I've done. Um, but I hope, it, I hope that this book helps people. Uh, and I hope that, you know, even if it doesn't directly lead to some transformative developments in people's lives, you know, that they find it interesting and intellectually stimulating. I think it's great that you have that courage to experiment. I mean, we're not all going to succeed in everything we do. Um, but I, I can say I don't necessarily agree with everything, of course, that, that was written, but it, I found it very valuable and it kind of confirmed the path that I was on myself. And you put to paper a lot of thoughts uh, uh, that I had in my mind. Uh, you put them out uh, on paper so I can kind of see them and visualize them. And how can people best follow you, uh, your work, and, and support you as well? Well, I, I run a blog at cluborlov.com. Uh, I publish, in general, two articles a week, sometimes a little less. On Tuesdays, I publish a, a, a freebie article that everybody can read. And on Thursdays, I publish for my supporters on patreon.com. So uh, people have to uh, donate um, as little as a dollar a month to my cause uh, in order to read what I publish on Thursdays. Uh, I also started doing videos and will probably continue doing that as well. Uh, you do the videos on the Patreon? Uh, so far, I haven't. There'll, be, there'll probably be private videos on YouTube, but it, they will be visible to people on Patreon and people with links. Okay, so I, I do urge listeners to go out and get the book Shrinking the Technosphere and your past books you've written on Collapse. You can get them, I believe, directly from uh, him or through Amazon, uh, paperback or, or Kindle. Uh, and if you do enjoy his work, definitely go check out the Patreon where he has the premium content. If I can ever get my podcast, Geopolitics and Empire, out of the, out of the red uh, I'd be happy to support you as well, uh, Dimitri. And it's been great talking to you. Thank you very much.